Good evening, everyone. My name is Paul Branky, I'm an Associate Fellow at the International College. Um, welcome, all of you, to this third in a series of what uh, we inelegantly called series of speaker events, and inelegantly called the Hexi MIM Speaker Series, especially being a health experience institute, and MIM being the Management in Medicine program for programmes of this college. Uh, this speaker series, I will say this at this point, is uh, we're very grateful for funding from the Templeton Educational Charitable Trust for this event. The format of these events is evolving, but what we want to do is involve um, local um, researchers and national and international speakers with practitioners um, in evolving practice in management of healthcare. So that's the object. And um, what we're going to try and do this evening has, uh, is provoke something of a discussion rather than simply a series of presentations. Um, so both the speakers have asked me, um, at the end, of the, there'll, be, there'll be two um, opportunities for questions after Suzanne has spoken, and at the end after Murray has spoken. And obviously the aim is at the end that it will be more general and, and picking up themes. But both have asked me to ask you to uh, not only ask questions, but to make comments and observations. So, where unusually those are, usually those are perhaps not a frown on this evening, your comments are also welcome. I've got my around. That's fine, yes. Good, so the part of the evening is going to be, I'll run through that. Suzanne's going to speak first, then we're going to have um, questions and comments on her presentation, then Murray's going to speak, uh, and then we'll have a general discussion. And then at 7 o'clock, um, everybody's invited across to the bar, which is just across, and I'll repeat that across the way forward, drinks. So that's the plan for the evening. And I'm going to start us off by asking Suzanne Shale to start us off. Suzanne is, I've just found out, a lawyer by background, which I didn't know, and it was formerly um, a fellow of New College and a university lecturer involved here in Oxford. Um, she's currently a senior researcher in a health experiences research group and a consultant in organisational ethics. So without further ado, I would invite Susan to start us off. Well, I'd like to start by thanking you for giving me the opportunity to share my research and to talk to you about moral leadership in healthcare organisations. Um, the, the way that uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Murray Anderson Wallace for agreeing to come and be a, a, a discussant tonight, because what we're hoping to be able to do is to explore both the theory and the practice um, of moral leadership in healthcare organisations, and particularly the theory and practice around some quite difficult and challenging issues. So, um, this is the route map um, for the journey. The first thing I'm going to address, because I'm sure this is a question in your mind, is what on earth do I know about moral leadership and how do I know it? Um, I'm then going to go on and say a little bit about what moral leadership means, because I think that we need to start off um, by just sort of you know, clarifying what, what this thing is that we're trying to talk about. Um, I'm then going to go on to look at the question of what are moral leaders in medicine concerned with? How do they actually do moral leadership? I'm going to introduce the notion of propriety as a significant practice in moral leadership. And I'm going to emphasize and ask, pose questions really about why it's important. Towards the end, 
I'm going to have a little bit to say about what all of this has to do with health experiences, which is the field in which I'm um, now spending quite a lot of time researching. Um, and the thing that I wanted to mention at the beginning is that there's a slightly expanded version of this presentation that will be available on my LinkedIn profile. Um, I mention that because I love sharing the data that I've got, and like many qualitative researchers, I find it really difficult to cut the data um, out, of, out of the presentation. So those of you who'd like to explore the data a bit further are welcome to go and look at the slightly larger presentation on LinkedIn. So, what do I know about moral leadership? I can't stand here in front of you as somebody who has practiced moral leadership in healthcare organisations. And I know that some of you who are here do, in fact, do that. So I feel I need to set out my credentials in, in advance. I carried out a qualitative study of the moral practices of medical directors in primary and secondary care organisations in the UK. I interviewed about 25 medical directors, which is a reasonable enough sort of size of sample uh, for a piece of qualitative research, but it's a tiny number by comparison with the sorts of numbers of patients whom one would characteristically engage um, in a clinical trial. However, although it's a tiny number by comparison with a clinical trial, it is about 25 times larger than the sample that's used in most philosophical theorizing. <laughs> because most philosophy is based on the cogitations of a single person sitting at their desk. So I think I can make a claim here that, um, you know, that there's, there's some benefit to us garnering the wisdom of this group of 25. So I recruited medical directors who were recommended as the study went on by other medical directors. So to a large degree, these were people who were recognized by their peers and colleagues as being people in the field who had something to offer me in this inquiry. They were thought to be people who were, were indeed practicing or endeavoring to practice as moral leaders. For the philosophers among you, you would recognize, I think, what we might call the credentials problem here. And the credentials problem for philosophers is the basic question that if you need to ask someone for moral advice, how on earth can you know whether you're asking the right person? Because having to ask for moral advice presupposes that you're not going to be in a position to make a judgment about the kind of moral advice that you're offered. And there's a similar kind of problem with doing research into moral leadership. And you might pose the question, did I ask the right people? We might have an extended discussion about that on this or another occasion, but I'd recognize that there's an issue there. Anyhow, at an appropriate point in my interview, I looked my medical director in the eye and said, well, look, looking back over recent years, what's been the most troubling issue that you've dealt with? And once they'd identified an issue, and quite often they identified two or three, because frankly they were dying to talk about them, I then said, look, let's just take what you think would be the most fruitful one for me to discuss with you. Assume I know nothing at all about your field and how you work, and tell me step by step exactly what you did. And the reason for that was that I wanted to get a handle not just on what they were thinking, but also what they were doing. 
But again, we might recognise there's a bit of a problem here, is how far can you rely on what people tell you about what they're doing? Um, but that, that's a problem that we always face in qualitative research, and, and again, it's one that we might come to later. Now, I'm going to, um, before I go on to talk more about what they told me, I just want to clarify what I took moral leadership to mean and what I take it to mean um, for the purposes of tonight. And I'm very conscious that I chose to call the, the book in which I published my research Moral Leadership in Medicine. And I was using medicine in the sort of largest possible sense of the meaning of, you know, broadly speaking, the enterprise of healthcare. I didn't mean it um, to be just about what doctors did. But I did have to choose a particular group to interview. So I'm suggesting that, that some of what we learned from this group is relevant across healthcare, but it's certainly a doctor's view. But the way I see it is that leadership is both a role and an activity. We know sometimes that the people who are appointed to lead us um, don't make a very good fist of it. And equally we know that there are people who are not appointed to be our leaders, but are the ones who really step up to the plate and make a difference. And so it's that kind of leadership that I'm really thinking about. It's stepping up to the plate. Doctors then aren't the only people who lead in medicine. There are lots of others adopting a leadership role. And it's important to recognize that followership and demonstrating followership is a really important part of leadership. Leadership isn't just always being out at the front, but leadership is also about supporting others in the leadership role. So I then pursued and or wanted to think about two questions. What are the moral concerns of leaders in medicine, the people I'm interviewing, and how did they morally behave? But I was thinking about that because I also wanted to go on later in the inquiry into thinking about some normative questions. In other words, what ought to be the moral concerns of leaders in medicine, and how should they be acting? And again, for the um, philosophers among you, you would recognize that there's a problem here in moving from description to ought propositions. One of the first things that we teach philosophy students is that you can't derive an ought from an is. But unless you know what the nature of practices are, your philosophical theorizing is just hot air. It's, it has to be grounded in practice. So there's an important connection between what we understand the moral concerns to be and what we think they ought to be. So I want to um, explore with you now what I think is a critically important difference between making moral decisions and embarking upon moral action, that is, moral deciding and moral doing. And one of my slides here is a classic representation of the business both of leadership and indeed of moral thinking. And it's the picture of someone who is facing a fork in the road and trying to decide, he's even got his hand on his chin, trying to decide which fork in the road he's going to walk down. And I think that that notion of choice and of making a decision is central to a lot of debate about leadership and it's central to a lot of debate about morality. The question is always seen as being which fork, you know, which path in the road am I going to take? 
But I want tonight to also focus on what happens after you've started to walk down that road. And my other picture is about the perhaps slightly chilly business of having to follow through the moral choice that you've made to enact, to do the thing that you have decided needs doing. Because I think that in many respects, that is the real true challenge of morality, and it's the real true challenge of leadership. But we don't talk about it enough, and don't, haven't, I think, adequately theorised it. So I'm going to have a go at doing that tonight. Now, um, what I want to do is to just persuade you that there is a real difference between these two things, and to show how that cashes out in what's quite an important medico-moral concern. And so what I'm going to ask you first is to give me your answer to a particular moral question. And then I'm going to move on to explore what the doing of that might look like. Now, if we had a really kind of whizzy, sophisticated voting system, um, I'd be asking you to sort of press buttons on little widgets. But we don't have that, so what I'm going to ask you to do, because I want to get your sense of which way you would go with this, is I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and put up your hand. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way, and you definitely have to close your eyes, because the purpose of this is to find out what you folks think, rather than what you think after you've seen what other people have voted. Okay? So the first question is this one. When a treatment error has necessitated additional procedures or has temporarily affected a patient's health, is it preferable to tell or not to tell the patient, or if they're a child, their carer, what has happened? So the sort of um, additional procedures or temporarily affecting that I have in mind here is it may well be that an error um, has resulted in surgery, in additional um, parts of an intervention, or it may be that an error of medication has meant that someone has had to be on the ward for a bit longer than they might otherwise have been. So we're talking about necessitating additional procedures or temporarily affecting the patient's health. Right, okay, so this is the moment of truth. Can you all please close your eyes? And um, now that you've got your eyes closed, can you put up your hand if you think it's preferable to tell the patient? Okay, um, those of you with your hands up can put them down. And keep your eyes closed. Could you put up your hand if you think it's preferable to not tell the patient? Okie doke. Those of you with your hands up can now put them down. Thank you. Right, I'm going to tell you about um, the, the outcome of that in a moment. Right, I'm about to show you a clip of a disclosure and apology. And what I want you to decide when you see this is whether you think it's a good apology or whether you think it's a not very good apology. Now, I haven't been able to film this myself, so I need to tell you whereabouts this has come from and to enter a couple of caveats. Yeah. I'm going to show you a clip which I found on the web, and it's part of a program that's produced by the Johns, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health um, by an ethicist called Albert Roo. And the short clip that I'm going to show you is part of a much larger program 
and they put these clips for our edification on the web with the warning that it's very difficult to do this thing, a good disclosure and apology, in a mere two minutes. Yeah, and I think in fairness to them, we should recognise that. I should also say that this clip is actors, yeah, and you need to bear in mind that what you're going to see are a couple of actors acting out the disclosure and apology. But having allowed for that, this is what I want you to think about. Imagine that this is your colleague who has asked you to observe their disclosure and apology and give them a bit of feedback afterwards. Yeah. And the question is, are you going to be thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a really difficult feedback session. What on earth am I going to say to them? Because there's a lot of problems with this. Or are you going to be thinking to yourself, you know what, I thought that was a pretty good apology, all things <coughs> considered. Yeah. So um, I, couldn't, I didn't manage to embed this in my PowerPoint, so I'm going to go here to play the clip. So see what you think. Good afternoon, Ms. Brown. First, I would like to tell you that Timothy is recovering well from the operation. It turns out that he had a perforated intestine. We are now monitoring him very closely. And this type of situation is difficult because it is so hard to know what direction a patient's health may take when he has abdominal pain. It is therefore also very hard to decide whether to operate. However, I wish I could have come and checked on him sooner. But the nurse paged you three times. Why did you come and check on to me when the nurse was so concerned? When the nurse paged me, I was busy with other patients and could not respond immediately. When we did talk, she described your son's condition, but it did not seem serious to me. It was an hour after this conversation that your son got much worse and needed to be resuscitated. X-rays showed that Timothy's intestine had perforated and he needed emergency surgery. I am sorry that I was unable to see Timothy sooner. This may have caused his condition to be less than optimal prior to surgery. I would also like to apologize to you for subjecting you to such a stressful situation. Well, what's going to happen now? Are there going to be any long-term complications for Timmy? Timothy is now recovering very well in post-operative care. We're watching him closely and noting any change in his condition. However, at this point, we do not expect any complications. I want to tell you that we would like to prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. We are going to take this opportunity to rethink our plan of communication between nurses and doctors and to evaluate our procedure for providing backup when the attending surgeon is unable to respond to a page. You may go in and see Timothy now if you'd like. I'd like to uh, speak with you tomorrow when it is convenient and relate to you any information I have learned regarding Timothy's condition and recovery. Are there any questions you have for me now? No, not right now. But I would love to see my son. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to vote again. So, those of you who think that yeah, you know, that's, that's really, generally speaking, quite a good apology. I'm going to ask you to vote and put up your hands first. Then, if on balance you think it's really not a very good apology, 
pretty poor apology. I'm going to ask you to put up your hand second. And again, I'm going to ask you to vote without seeing what other people's choices are. Right, so could everybody now please close your eyes? And um, could you now put up your hand if you think, all things considered, that was a pretty good apology? Okay, so those of you with your hands up can put them down. And can you put up your hand if you think that that was a pretty poor apology and you'd be worrying about the feedback? Very interesting. Okay, so you can open your eyes now and I'm going to tell you about your votes. In response to the first question, should you disclose, you were, with the exception of one person, unanimously in favour. So it's not quite unanimous, is it? (laughs) 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 Virtually unanimous. You were virtually unanimously in favour of telling. And it was pretty, you know, that's all of you bar one. In relation to the apology, you were much more divided. And interestingly, in this group, I would say that about two-thirds of you thought it wasn't a very good apology. And about a third of you thought it was a fairly decent apology. Which I think is very interesting because I've shown that clip to a number of different groups. There's always division, but I would say that it's varied from between one-third good apology to two-thirds poor apology to the opposite. Two-thirds good apology, one-third poor apology, and sometimes it's split down the middle. Well, what are we to conclude from this? Um, I'll come back in a moment to the issue about why it might or might not have been a good apology, and it might be something that we would like to discuss later. Um, One of the fun things about um, showing that clip is is hearing people's thoughts about why that did or didn't work. But what does that preceding exercise tell us? I think it tells us some quite important things. First of all, that the moral quality of our lives is definitely associated with the quality of our moral decisions, but it does not rest on the quality of the decisions alone. Because if you had decided that you needed to do a disclosure followed by an apology, and that was regarded as being not a good apology, particularly by the patient or the the carer to whom you were apologising, the fact that you had made the right decision or a good decision to apologise would have been not entirely negated, but certainly undercut by the fact that when it came to enacting the apology, you didn't do a particularly good job. So what I'm suggesting then is that our judgment as living folks of the moral quality of actions depends significantly on how our decisions are enacted in the context of our relationships with others. And as we saw in terms of your response to the apology, judging the moral quality of enactment is extremely complex. It can be highly contingent on the perspectives of the observer. So it may be that a patient would judge that apology very differently from an expert healthcare communicator or very differently from a nurse or very differently from a doctor. But what I'm suggesting then is that it is difficult enough to make good moral decisions, but it is also extremely difficult to enact them. And that we need to be talking a bit more, certainly within the realms of healthcare ethics, about how you enact decisions and how you enact moral leadership as much as we do about the decisions themselves. 
Um, the preceding slide, for those of you who are interested um, in these things, is um, the summary from a wonderful book by Nick Smith called I Was Wrong, The Meanings of Apologies, where he set out the 11 essential elements to what he called a categorical apology. So that in Nick Smith's terms, if you're going to do the apology really well, it has to have those 11 elements, and then you need to perform the 11 elements well too. Um, as I say, these slides will be up on my LinkedIn site, so if you wanted to, to go and have a further look at those um, later, you'd be very welcome to. Right, now I promised um, in the preamble to the seminar, and maybe this is one of the reasons why some of you are here tonight, um, that I would be critical of the medical leadership competency framework, which I've sort of been dying to do in public for some time. Um, but I'm not going to be. I'm not going to. I'm not going to trash it because I think there are some strong things about it. But you know, I, I have a real worry about competency frameworks in principle. So it's always good to be able to put the boot in when you can. So what are we talking about with the medical leadership competency framework tonight? Is we're talking about that part of it which deals with acting with integrity, which reflects a segment of the competencies which is about demonstrating personal qualities. Um, and we need to know a bit more about that in order to understand what this competency framework means in terms of um, what integrity is. And I think that what we find within the competency framework is something which is very helpful, which is a focus on behaviour. What is unhelpful about telling particularly um, young medical leaders that they need to act with integrity is if we simplify the challenge that they face. And what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my talk is actually complicating and complexifying, problematizing the challenge of integrity. Because if we read what we're told here, that doctors, and in my terms other healthcare leaders, show leadership through acting with integrity, behaving in an open, honest and ethical manner, we're then told that competent doctors uphold personal and professional ethics and values, taking into account the values of the organisation, cultural beliefs and abilities of individuals. They communicate effectively, taking into account religious and ethnic backgrounds and so on. They value respect and promote equality and diversity, and they take appropriate action if ethics and values are compromised. Well, I think the problem with all of this, and what I'm going to put to you for the rest of my talk, is that the fundamental challenge to acting with integrity is that what is difficult is that medical leaders get pulled in several different directions at once. And the challenge is balancing the tensions between the different directions in which acting with integrity would take you. So I'm going to go back to my research now and tell you a little bit about what came out when I talked to medical leaders about what they were finding troubling. So remember I asked medical leaders what they were most troubled by. And I'm going to be interested to see what you as an audience think were the things that they mentioned to me most often. So the choices you've got are resource allocation in general, service reconfiguration, you know, creating new care pathways and, for example, clustering smaller services into larger ones in pursuit of clinical excellence. Managing doctors suspected or of being or known to be incompetent 
or managing suspected or known medical harm. Right, now we're going to do this very quickly because it's, you know, this is an exercise which is interesting for me. Again, closed eyes, right? Number one, put up your hand if you think resource allocation in general was the thing they mentioned most often. Okay, number two, service reconfiguration. How, how often was that the most difficult problem? Okay, number three, managing doctors suspected of being or known to be incompetent. Okie doke. And the last one, managing suspected or known medical harm. Okay, now that's very interesting because you um, reflected, I think, the research. What was talked to me about most often as being most morally troubling was managing doctors suspected of being or known to be incompetent. The second most frequent issue was managing suspected or known medical harm. Third one was service reconfiguration. Interestingly, the, the, the fourth most frequent one was allocating discretionary resources. That is, the, I've given these examples, procedures such as a you know, primary care trust uh, committee might have to consider would they make available procedures such as um, in vitro fertilisation followed by prenatal genetic diagnosis for where there are particularly difficult conditions. Another thing that was mentioned was conflict between personal beliefs and the demands of public service. I've given the example on the slide of euthanasia, but actually the one that was mentioned most often was termination of pregnancy. Um, and in fact, um, they very rarely chose to discuss with me resource allocation in general, um, which was a matter of some surprise to the um, group that was my steering group for this research, because when I proposed doing it, they said to me, well, we think that's going to be pretty obvious what it is that people will talk to you about. And I said, oh, really, is it? What are they going to talk to me about then? And they said, well, it'll be resource allocation, won't it? So um, it was worth doing the research. I found out you know, that, that, in fact, it wasn't. So what were the male leaders in medicine doing? And here we come to the kind of nub of things, I think. I asked what leaders did about the stuff that troubled them. And they described what I eventually came to see as five sets of moral behaviours. And I chose to call these propriety. And I think this is, this is my claim to originality and to um, uh, introducing something new into the debate around medical leadership. What I understood propriety to be is an interesting combination of values and the behaviours that serve or enact those values. And because of the nature of the moral troubles that medical directors talked to me about, they identified five sets which were these. I'm not saying that this is exhaustive of the sets of moral values and behaviours that go with them, but these were the ones which emerged from my research. Fiduciary propriety, by which I mean, I'll explain all these in a moment, putting the patient first, a commitment to putting the patient first. Bureaucratic propriety, which is about ensuring that the organisation is run well. Collegial propriety, which is about supporting colleagues. Inquisitorial propriety, which is about investigating possible incompetence or harm. And restorative propriety, which is doing the work that needs to be done in the aftermath of harm. And th this is the bit where um, those of you who are interested in the data might be most tempted to go and have a look at the um, slides, slides on LinkedIn. So 
Fiduciary propriety, then, puts patients first. And I'd suggest that fiduciary propriety is that part of the sort of medical value set that fuels noble dreams and selfless endeavours. I think that fiduciary propriety has motivated courageous action on behalf of patients, for example, um, by healthcare workers who <coughs> resisted the stigmatisation of patients with HIV-AIDS in the early days of that epidemic. Fiduciary propriety becomes most evident, I think, in giving a licence to speak very assertively on the part of patients. And I would suggest that it gives a licence to speak in ways that would sometimes be thought unacceptable if it weren't for the fact that you were representing patients' interests. And I think that it's fiduciary propriety which fuels these occasional rhetorical sorties into the moral high ground, um, and shroud-waving would be one of those bits of the moral high ground. And this is a quotation, one of the, um, which, which represents in some ways the way in which a medical director might understand the enactment of fiduciary propriety. And he said to me, I probably don't recognise the strength with which I put over some of my arguments. I'm not by nature a particularly forceful character. But I suppose at times I do invest a lot of emotional involvement in the way I put, difficult, put across difficult issues at board level, particularly for non-execs, when they're not necessarily aware of... Well, it goes back to that patient thing, you know, what the effect on individuals could be. So there's a second quotation which, which will be on the, the slides on, on LinkedIn. So, but the core, really, of fiduciary propriety is of representing, in the strongest possible terms, the interests of patients to the organisation and in those places where patients don't get to walk, which is usually in the boardroom. Now, bureaucratic propriety, I find is a really interesting one because I'm on a mission to rehabilitate bureaucracy for the NHS. <laughs> We've forgotten what the value of a virtuous bureaucracy is. Because a virtuous bureaucracy is about the official about efficient, impartial, and accountable allocation of shared public resources. And the sorts of behaviours that we expect of virtuous bureaucrats are things which, when you think about them, we would not want to have a publicly run health service without. So we want bureaucrats to be impartial in their deed and demeanour, not to go around giving the, the most resources and the best resources to their best friends or the patients they happen to like as a group. They have to be willing to be held to account. They have to abnegate their personal interests and morals. And this means being a medical director who is prepared to stand up for a service providing termination of pregnancy even if you're a Christian and don't approve of it. It means supporting distributive rules and protocols, ensuring that the cake is carved up in a fair way. And it means being conscientious in office. And suggesting that those sorts of practices don't come naturally, they're learned, and it takes a lot of self-discipline to exercise them, especially in the face of provocation. So this is another hospital medical director talking about what I think of as bureaucratic propriety. I think doctors need to understand, he said, that there's a stewardship we all share. People say that money isn't health. It is. It's publicly funded. We have to be accountable. 
and there's the stewardship of quality, and the stewardship of resources, and so on. So moving on to the third propriety, this is about putting colleagues first. I think collegial propriety, particularly in the guise of the critique of professionalism, and this notion that the professionals are a conspiracy against the laity, um, has, has, in the same way that we tend to think of bureaucracy as a, as a vice, we have come to think of professional collegiality as a vice too. It's been much criticised by commentators who have said that quite often professional alliances are self-serving. And the Chicago School famously used to declare, these are sociological researchers, that their mission was to elevate the humble and humble the elevated. And that meant that if you were doing research into doctors, you gave them a pretty good kicking. <laughs> but the, the, the problem with that, I think, is it means that we've forgotten to what the positive form of collegial behaviours are, that they promote harmony, team functioning, and the development of the community of practice. And we see collegial behaviour in things like reciprocity, support and mentoring for juniors, service to a professional body such as a Royal College, and very importantly, and this is something I've learned from work that I've done with the Royal College of Surgeons, and I'm delighted that, that one of the people who's involved with that work is here tonight, <coughs> is that collegiality brings with it a deference to professional community determination of clinical standards. So that if your colleagues say that's not good enough, you defer to that judgment. Um, the quotation that I'm not going to read out here is a primary care um, trust medical director talking about the way in which even though he felt a very strong bond with doctors, it wasn't appropriate to allow that bond to get in the way of performance management. And that's the important point about professionalism and professional collegiality, is that the downside to it is that it gets in the way of promoting patients' interests. The upside to it is that it promotes patient interests. And the question is whether we can have one form of it and not another. Right. I must hurry up a little, so I'm moving on to inquisitorial propriety next. Inquisitorial propriety came to the fore in my research because of the significance of the moral trouble of inquiring into and managing doctors who were thought to be incompetent. And so a large part of doing that management process is inquiring into and trying to make sense of the situation that you're facing as a medical leader. And inquiries and investigations are capable of both or either rebuilding or destroying patient trust. They can rebuild or destroy collegial relationships. They can rebuild or destroy clinician self-confidence and team dynamics. And they can certainly rebuild or destroy respect for medical management. And inquisitorial propriety is challenging because every party to an investigation has expectations of how everyone else should behave. But one of the critical ways in which people talked about proper behaviours is that in the investigator, however sympathetic you are to one side or another, you need to remain objective, neutral, and be open to hearing the other side. For the person under investigation, there's a very high expectation that you present yourself to your um, medical director with candor, regret where that's appropriate, 
and equally where appropriate, a frank confession where, for example, a mistake has been made. And interestingly, I think that there are expectations, particularly among professionals, that those who are victims or complainants about um, medical harm are both truthful about what they've experienced, but also show a degree of mercy for the transgressor. Now, we can come back later on and consider whether or not all of these things are appropriate, but those, those are the messages which came out from the data. And so again, here's a hospital uh, medical director talking about how with inquisitorial propriety, process comes first. You have to make sure that everything is done properly, that we're fair and equitable in our dealings with the individual practitioner, in dealings with legal representatives, in dealings with patients' representatives, that there's no bias, no prejudice on my part. It's particularly difficult when you're face-to-face -face with someone suffering as a result of medical injury, whether it's patient or practitioner. And the final propriety is restorative propriety. This one I find fascinating. One of the um, philosophers whose work I most admire is Margaret Urban Walker. And she's written that philosophy hasn't paid enough attention to what happens after wrong decisions have been made. It's as if philosophy always starts off with a clean sheet of paper. But what we need to know is what to do once the copybook has been blotted. So we need to pay more attention, she suggests, to what happens in the aftermath. And restorative propriety is about doing moral repair after harm has happened. And it turns fundamentally on acknowledgement. It's about acknowledging that something has gone wrong, and it's about acknowledging the person to whom harm has happened, or to their family, acknowledging that person as a moral equal, a moral interlocutor. And some of the very familiar behaviours that we'd associate with restorative propriety are things like contrition, the performance of an apology as we saw tonight, or in appropriate cases, financial restitution. And I think that moral repair, restorative propriety, raises very difficult issues for organisations because it's important it comes from symbolically the right place. And the trouble is with organisations, who has standing to represent the organisation and to do moral repair on the part of organisations? Right, so this is the central problem that I'm more or less going to leave you with, because I don't think there's an easy solution beyond at least recognising that this is the problem that we face. The problem is that there are tensions between the proprieties. Those of you who are really reading the slides will have noticed that every single one of them was headed that this propriety was the one which came first. For fiduciary propriety, it's patients first. Bureaucratic propriety asks you to put the organisation and the way in which it represents the interests of groups of patients first. Collegial propriety asks you to put your colleagues first. Inquisitorial propriety to put process first and restorative propriety to put moral repair first, and they can't all come first at the same time. So I'd suggest that the um, fundamental skill of moral leadership is being able to balance those demands and to manage the tensions between them. Because if you're redesigning services, your bureaucratic commitments, bureaucratic propriety, is going to be in tension with fiduciary propriety and collegial propriety. If you're reorganising a service 
and you have a group of patients who've been getting a very good service, thank you, from a local clinic, they will lose out, whether you like it or not, when they have to travel further from home and go to a different service elsewhere. And you can't wish that away by having a consultation. You know, some people will lose out. And you know, maintaining that balance is then difficult. It's the same with investigating colleagues. That your commitment to the patients, to put patients first, may well be in tension with inquisitorial propriety, having to maintain an impartial demeanour. As the medical director said, if you have to face a patient who themselves or who a member of whose family has suffered a medical harm, if you're an empathetic and kind and compassionate person, you want to reach out to them. But if you're carrying out an investigation or an inquiry and have to maintain an impartial position, you feel very constrained from doing that. So those are the sorts of tensions um, that we get left with. And I just want to um, read out, I think, one, one last um, uh, comment from medical director who talked about what it really means to be trying to balance collegial propriety and inquisitorial propriety when they're managing performance. The thing that you need to know about this medical director is that they had done an amazing job in a primary care trust context of managing the performance of a lot of um, local single-handed GP practitioners who are frankly not up to the job. So this is someone who's really committed to ensuring that patients in that community got the best possible GP services that they could. And this is what they said to me, I'm plagued with doubts all the time. I do worry tremendously about am I being unfair? Are my standards too high? Is this so in one of the practices where I worked as a GP in the past, I witnessed the effect of a complaint that I thought was quite unjustified. He was a terribly conscientious doctor. Now he killed himself. He committed suicide. And it traumatised not only his family, the partnership, the practice team, but the whole community. All of his patients felt guilty that this wonderful man had died over a wretched complaint that was ill-founded. That experience has really made me think when we do discipline somebody, we could be wrong. It's been painted this way, but there's another side to the story. We have to be terribly careful, because I don't want, I don't want another doctor's death on my conscience through mishandling a disciplinary process. Now, I, re I want to re-emphasize and reinforce that this was a doctor who had done it. They had gone through that disciplinary process and dealt with practitioners who were known by the primary care trust to have been providing inadequate treatment, in some cases for years. But the fact that they knew that that was their task didn't make it an easy one to do. And they went on sort of later in the interview to talk about how at the moment of decision it was like counting on a rosary that they had got everything right, that everything had been done properly, so that the final decision, one that they thought they took on behalf of patients and their profession, was the right decision. Thank you.